Our scripture reading for today comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 22 to 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who had sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your servant. Father, we are so thankful for how even in the midst of so much of what is unknown, of so much that is uncertain, one thing that we can always rely on is that you are faithful and that your word is ever-present and nothing can stop it from reaching your people, from feeding your people, from ministering to your people. And so, Father, I ask now that you would speak to us through your servant and that you would empower us yet again to receive all the hopes, all the promises, all the assurances that come from it so that we would live valiantly, faithfully, and truthfully in this world that we are in. Father, would you bless us now, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, we have a special guest preacher today, someone who is very familiar in our fold, and that is Pastor Peter Huang, has graciously come uh, to give me some reprieve, as well as another opportunity for you to hear from him. And so, without further ado, let's welcome Pastor Peter to come and to give God's Word to us this day. Hi, my name is Peter. It's great to be here with you today, worshiping with you. It's been several weeks since the pandemic has hit us, and if you're like me, uh, and you've been worshiping from your computer or casting it onto your TV, and it's been hard. Um, you know, my wife and I, we try to keep our kids under control on the couch, on the same couch that they're used to jumping up and down on. Um, there's something lost in meeting together and rubbing shoulders together and having coffee together and talking. And of course, the pandemic has more serious implications. Um, there's a good chance that you or someone you know has been affected by it, have gotten sick, um, they've lost work, 
or they faced even death. Um, and the sinister thing about death is, even though even if it's not caused by COVID-19, um, it's hard to mourn because you're not allowed to gather. Um, it's difficult to comfort each other at this time. So as a fellow brother in Christ, my heart goes out to you. Please reach out to me if I can pray for you. Uh, but in terms of life in general otherwise, while we're all sheltering in place, um, it could feel like we're kind of wasting away. We're not able to go out and kind of do the things that we're used to doing on a normal basis that can make life feel fun and full. But at the same time, I think this is an incredible opportunity where we're almost forced to be with ourselves and to think about what our lives are really about. So while we're cooped up, while we're sheltered in place, how do we go from just existing, going day by day, to thriving and even living into the people that we were made to be? Today's text comes from the book of John, and it happens after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, when Jesus miraculously multiplied five loaves and two fish, and they all ate and they were satisfied, um, to the point where there were 12 baskets left over. And this must have been a really memorable episode, because aside from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the only episode that's recorded in all four Gospels. But what's unique about John's account is this little segment the next day after the crowds ate their bread, commonly called the Bread of Life Discourse. This is the first of the seven traditional I Am statements of Jesus. Our text starts out when the crowds who ate the bread and the fish went out of their way to seek Jesus on the other side of the sea. But Jesus sees these people and he sees right into their hearts and he sees why they are seeking him. And so instead of a warm welcome, he sort of calls them out. In verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're not looking, at, looking for me for me. You're looking for me because I gave you free food. Now, of course, I don't think Jesus is giving them a hard time about their need for food. Really, I think you can do an entire sermon series on the importance and the place that the Bible talks about food and the intimacy and the closeness that comes with sharing a table with somebody. And remember, you know, here in this text, in the beginning of chapter 6, in all four gospel accounts, it's very clear that it was Jesus' idea himself, his initiative to go ahead and feed the people in the first place. But coming back to the point, uh, by seeking Jesus to get more food, apparently they missed something. All right, let's look at verse 26 again. He says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And at first that phrase, uh, not because you saw the signs, can seem a little unclear. Because right? on the one hand, they clearly saw the sign. They clearly saw the sign. They ate the bread and the fish. It says so earlier in verse 14, after they ate the loaves and the fish, John says people saw the sign that he had done. In fact, you go back all the way to verse 2. The same crowd that followed him in the first place, they followed him because they saw the signs that he was performing on the sick. So what does it mean when Jesus says, you're, seek you're seeking not because you saw the signs? Well, most commentators agree their failure wasn't on the mere observation of the sign itself. What they failed to do was to recognize what the miraculous sign pointed to. In other words, Jesus isn't calling 
a failure to just calling a, calling out a failure just to observe or to even experience. It was a failure to first observe and experience, and then finally come to the right conclusion about what they saw, about what they experienced. They didn't respond with the right action. They failed to see how the sign pointed to something about Jesus himself. And the question I want to ask is, how did they miss this? How did they miss it? It's so similar to how other people Jesus encountered missed it at different times, especially religious people. Even the disciples themselves, the 12 who were closest with them at times, how did they miss that this sign said something about the identity and the person of Jesus himself? And maybe to make it more relevant for us today, I want to ask us as we read this story, could we have missed what this sign tells us about Jesus himself? Oh, you might say, no, you know, I know how the story ends. I've read the Bible. I'm a Christian. I understand what Jesus is doing here. I know what the sign means. But do we really? Right? Not just in our heads, but in the way we live our lives. Do we live in such a way that validates the truthfulness of that belief? You know, recently I was in the market for a new minivan, and I absolutely hate going to the car dealership. You know, I wish going to the car dealership was like buying a sweater at Uniqlo. You look at the price, you look at the sweater, you like the price, you buy the sweater, and that's it. You know, but buying the car, there's this whole process of haggling and negotiation, and I hate it, right? But you have to do it. So I did my research into what I thought was a fair market value of the car, and when I felt like I was ready to walk into that dealership, I googled negotiating car. And I was trying to get into the mind of a car dealer. Right? What does he want? And what do I want? How do I, sure, how do I make sure I'm walking out with the price that I want to pay and that he's happy too? And as I got deep into my research, well, really Google search, you know, I, I ran across these rather serious-sounding articles on the psychology of negotiation. And in negotiation, there's apparently this concept called framing. And some of you work in sales, and you know all about this. Right? Well, what is framing? Well, framing, I got this from an article. Framing is about creating a cognitive bias in the brain that makes decisions about information depending upon how that information is presented. Right, so if someone's doing framing on you, they stack information in a way to, make you, to, to cause you to make a certain decision. And the crazy thing is we, we fall for it all the time. In fact, even when we know what's happening to us, we fall for it many times. Right, the classic example of this is when we go shopping. You know, when I look for sneakers at Nordstrom Mac, because everyone buys their sneakers at Nordstrom Mac, you know, I might find a good shoe. It's come a good brand, good leather, it's well constructed. The price tag says $49, and that seems to be a good price. I look at it, I might buy it, I might not. But if that same sneaker had a price tag with just a little more information, for example, if the price tag indicated that the original retail price was actually $200, and a Nordstrom Rack, which is a discounter to begin with, had sold it for 120 in the past, which is higher than most Nordstrom Rack stock to begin with. So you know this is a pretty decent shoe. And not only do you see that Nordstrom Rack used to sell it for 120 but now you see a red sticker on top of that 
that indicates that this shoe is now on sale for $49. And in fact, you see the same shoe in your size next to it, but that red price tag has $59 written on it. And now all of a sudden, you've come to the conclusion that this is a really good deal. This is too good of a deal to pass up. And even if you might not need the sneaker, you almost feel like you have to buy it. Nordstrom Rack just did a frame job on you. Now track with me here. Frames don't just apply to when you're buying sneakers or cars or sweaters. All of us, without exception, Christian, non-Christian, religious, atheist, we have a frame out of which we operate in life. And left unchecked, that frame is built almost entirely around what the world tells us. It tells us about things like who we are, what is right and wrong, about things like what is possible and not possible, what you're in control of and what you're not in control of, what's important, what's worth spending your time and your money on, who's important and why they're important to you. And here's where it matters. As a result of this frame, we move forward and we make decisions, decisions that impact our lives, decisions that impact the lives of the people around us. So coming back to our text, Jesus isn't denying that they observed the sign with their eyes, that they ate of the loaves and the fish and they got full. He gives us more clarity around what the issue is in verse 27. In verse 27 he says this, he says, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. You see, the problem is that they engage Jesus while operating out of a frame, out of a paradigm that said, I will be content as long as all my physical needs are met. My most important needs are in this world. I am satisfied if you can give me what I need in this life. And even if these were religious people, and the text seemed to indicate that they were at least nominally religious, their attitude towards Jesus shows that their faith was really just an afterthought. But Jesus was only good to them as long as he can provide a particular resource. I mean, look at the beginning of the whole episode. They, they come calling him rabbi, which is an honorific title meaning teacher. You read in John 16, uh, verse 14 and 15, you see they called him like the messianic prophet. They even wanted to make him king. And read on. Right? After Jesus sets the record straight about who he was and what he came to do, what he was truly about, at the end of the chapter in John chapter 6, verse 66, droves of these same people who once praised him are now dismissing him and leaving him. And so what I want to point out to you as readers of this text is, can we blame them for what they've done? Can we blame them for having the attitude that they had? Because let's be honest, even as Christians, we can say we believe in Jesus. We can call him our great prophet, priest, and king. We can even believe an eternal life that is to come. But in our day-to-day -day lives, right, are the people in our text really that different from you and me? You know, when things are going well, in times of abundance, you know, it's easy to say, you know, it's easy to praise God. It's easy to go hashtag blessed. It's easy to say thank you, Jesus, for everything that you provide. 
But your real frame, I'd argue your true frame out of which you live, gets exposed. It gets expressed when things are difficult, when things don't go your way. You know, when this whole COVID-19 pandemic started, um, maybe about you know, a month ago, about six weeks ago, um, I was with my family and we were doing our first online worship service at home. And you know, I was listening to my pastor speak and um, he noted that there seemed to be two sort of general reactions to the pandemic. You know, on the one hand, there were people who were very fearful and anxious. And on the other hand, there were those who seemed more poised and confident about it. You know, we thought it wasn't a big deal that this whole thing was overblown. But he said something interesting. He said it's, it's tempted to think that your reaction, one way or another, is like a measure of your faith. Like if you're fearful, maybe you have a weak faith. Or if you're poised, maybe you have a strong faith. But he, what he said next I thought was so spot on. That your measure of faith isn't determined by how fearful or how poised you are. Right? Fear or confidence can be natural reactions in any crisis, whether you're a Christian or not. The real question is, how are you processing your fear? Or on what are you resting that confidence? You know, it's one thing to, to wisely plan and shop for the things you and your family legitimately need while sheltering in place. It's a whole other thing when fear drives you to anxiously hoard a lifetime supply of a Costco toilet paper or any other material good. Or when others at the store seem like competition for that last thing you need on the store shelf. That exposes the place, you place, your, the place that you put your trust in to overcome that fear. Or if your confidence rests on the fact that maybe you're relatively young and strong and healthy and you feel like statistically the virus shouldn't affect me that much. Well, that exposes a confidence that rooted, that's rooted primarily in self. Either way, he says, the object of that hope, the object of your faith, is very much in this world. My point is, in times like now, right, times of crisis, when our true frames are exposed, even as followers of Jesus, even though we might, not, even though we might know what Jesus is all about, we can act remarkably similar to the people in our text. And so Jesus is imploring his audience. And I believe Jesus is imploring us today that no matter the circumstances, no matter the crisis, to thrive in the, even in the midst of scarcity, to experience true peace and salvation, no matter what the circumstances, he said, needs a commitment to not work for food that perishes, to not work for food that goes away, but invest, give your life to food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now let's bring this home as we start to wrap up. What is this food that endures to eternal life? Well, in verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now I'll tell you what this is not. He's not talking about some magic pill that enables you to just exist for a very long period of time. Like, if you think about it, do we really want that to begin with? You know, I was watching Aladdin. Uh, this is the version with Will Smith that was put out back in uh, 2019 with my kids. And there's a scene where Aladdin and the genie meet for the first time. 
And the genie tells him how powerful he is and how he can do anything that he wants to do and how he can live forever. But really, this eternal life that he had was just a curse. That at the end of the day, he was bound by that lamp. And he was always doing the bidding of his master's three wishes. He was never truly free to enjoy his life. So again, what is this food that endures to eternal life? How does Jesus describe himself, the bread of life? Well, the, life, the word life there in that phrase, bread of life, that word doesn't just ex describe existence, right? You're not just an organism with a heartbeat going about your day. No, it speaks to the quality of existence now. It speaks to a certain quality of life. Because look, he says, whoever, over, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? This food is not a food that's found anywhere on earth. It's outside of our frame of existence. It's on a totally different level. It needs to be revealed to us by the Father. And that's what Jesus says in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He is the holistic satisfaction for all of our deepest human hungers, all of our deepest human thirst. No matter what your frame tells you is your biggest need, Jesus is saying, I am the one that you've been longing for long before you even knew to ask. Now, I want to highlight what this is not, right? What the bread of life is not. It's not a, a promise to always change our circumstances, right? Take of Jesus the bread of life, and he might or he might not prevent us from experiencing the physical effects of this pandemic. He might or he might not prevent the loss of work. He might, not, he might or he might not prevent us from experiencing any other affliction or suffering or imminent physical death. But what he will do as we take of this bread of life is to open our eyes to the truth of who we are about how our deepest need is in the intimate union with our God and our Creator, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere, yet merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so let's finish off with this. How do we receive this food? How do we partake of the bread of life? Right? It's the same question that the people in our text ask. You know, what must we do? And here's the response from Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He says, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, shall not hunger, shall never thirst. Here's the imperative. Just go to him. Believe in him. It's so simple, but at the same time, it's, it's so difficult, isn't it? You know, because in my rational, skeptical mind, this can sound so much like a, a pie in the sky, you know, especially when you're at a low, especially if you're struggling through dark times. You know, it's like something that you can say that, that, that sounds cool and all spiritual, but it doesn't really do anything. And, you know, as I thought this way, you know, I remembered this passage, this story from Mark chapter 2. Right? It's a story that happens early in Jesus' ministry 
Jesus is starting to gain some notoriety and he's at this home and there's so many people gathered to, to hear him teach. And there are these four guys who have a paralytic, presumably their friend, and they want Jesus to take a look at him so that he can heal him. Right? And because it was so crowded in the house, they couldn't get through the door, they go up on the roof and they lift the roof up and they bring this man down on the mat to place him in front of Jesus. And as Jesus looks at this man, what does he say to him who has this paralytic who has an obvious physical need? He says this. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And, you know, and part of me, I hear that record like, what? Like, what did he just say? Like, what does that even mean? Right? What, what does it do for this guy who can't even walk? And that's the same kind of reaction that the crowd has. And then Jesus responds with this in verse 9. He says, which is easier? Right, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Right, obviously, in our frame of mind, in our frame of existence, it's much easier to just say something that sounds cool, rather than actually do something that makes the guy walk. But he continues on. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And guess what? The guy did. He got up, and he walked before them all. And the crowd was amazed, and they glorified God. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, wow. Right? Those words, your sins are forgiven. Those words, they mean something. This guy walked, and I imagined he might have lived a little longer, but of course, like everybody else in the world, he died. But now, because his sins are forgiven, he dances in heaven with his Savior, and he'll continue dancing with his Savior forever. Again, Jesus says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, these are not light words. These words have meaning. Right, last week was Easter Sunday, and churches around the world streamed and testified to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just as certain as that resurrection was three days after Jesus' death on the cross, your life, no matter how it ends here on earth, is on a trajectory that Christ Himself will never lose if you put your faith, if you put your trust in Him. It says in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on that last day. So I ask, go before Him as you are right now and ask Him for that bread of life. I assure you, Jesus will hear your prayer. Scripture promises that if we ask anything according to His will, that He hears us. And I can't imagine a prayer that God would be more eager to answer than this. Pray this today. And not just today, but every day. He is our daily bread. Lean into it. And I challenge you, see it for yourself. How this union with your hero your Savior, your true love starts to incrementally change who you are. Experience this for yourself. How even in the midst of this pandemic, how even in the midst of sheltering in place, the truth 
And the reality of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And he ends like this, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we trust that all things happen according to your providence. Um, that includes this pandemic. And to those who suffer in its wake, whether it's uh, through sickness or loss of work or even death of loved ones, I pray for your boundless compassion and comfort to heal and to provide. And while we shelter in place, let us not squander this time, but may we use it to reflect on what we truly value in life. And as we do, intercept our hearts, intercept our lives, open our eyes to see that you truly are the bread of life. Give us the faith, give us the strength to come and to believe, not just today, but every day, that we might not hunger, that we may never thirst. In your son's name we pray, amen.